Welcome to Invalid Culture, a podcast dedicated to excavating the strangest, most baffling, and worst representations of disability in popular culture. Unlike other podcasts that review films you've probably heard of, Invalid Culture is all about looking into the abyss of pop culture adjacent representations that never quite broke through because, well, they're just awful. I'm joined today by my co-host, Jeffrey Preston. Jeff, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself? Uh, I am a professor of disability studies, and my background is in media. I have a PhD in media studies. I love movies and television, and I first got interested in media and disability because as a person with a physical disability, I always found it strange how the things that we see on television and in film were just not representative to my lived experience. And I wanted to understand why that was. I also have a love for terrible movies. The worse they are, the more I enjoy them. I don't care about the Oscars. I'm here for the Razzies. But I'm not the only one here at Invalid Culture. I'm also joined by my co-host, Erica Katzman. Erica, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, uh, I am uh, also um, teaching in disability studies. I, I have a PhD in health and rehab science. Um, I have a background in uh, cultural anthropology. So that's sort of where I come to this table. I'm really interested in the, the, the stories that we tell, uh, the things that drive us, the, the cultural narratives that find their way into these cinematic representations. And um, I can't say that I share your passion for <laughs> terrible film, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be along on this, this ride uh, with you. So that's sort of, that's sort of where, I, where I come to this table. And it is going to be a ride. So what is Invalid Culture? Well, we decided that it would be interesting to do a podcast not about those classic films that we all hear about and read about in the scholarship. Uh, we're not here to talk about Rain Man or What's Eating Gilbert Grape uh, or um, whatever Eddie Redmayne is trying to win an Oscar with this year. But rather, we decided it would be more interesting for us to look at maybe not just the B-list films, but the C-list films. Because it turns out there are a ton of bizarre, strange, often confusing films about disability that are not the type of thing you're going to probably see in theater, but is 100% the thing that you're going to see on your streaming platforms like Netflix and Prime Video and Disney Plus, Tubi. So Erica, why did you agree to do this with me? Why? Why would I agree <laughs> to do this with you? I mean, I'm, I'm, I am interested in, in sort of, I don't know if it's, if it's unfair to call this the, the underbelly of popular culture. I, I'm interested in knowing uh, what are the, I mean, I, I, I'm familiar with the Oscar winners, right? I know, I know those stories, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, to learn more about, and, you know, maybe pick apart a little bit, some of the, um, yeah, the lesser known, the lesser known tales that I, I wonder if these are going to really be lesser known tales, or if these are going to be tales that, that we know kind of well in different boxes. So, Invalid culture is going to be about looking at the culture that is just that, invalid. <laughs> Things that probably should not be consumed. But don't worry, wary traveler listening to this podcast. Erica and I will watch it for you. <laughs> and we will filter through the fun 
and the joy. If you'd like to play along with us, I recommend watching the movie before you listen to the podcast, but maybe not. Uh, maybe you prefer to be spoiled, hear what the movie's all about, check it out after. But most importantly, we want to hear from you. Do you know a absolutely absurd film about disability? Have you seen something that left you questioning existence, reality, the very nature of humankind? Please send it to us. Send it in. We want to know the filth that you've had to endure. Punish us for doing this to you. So it is our first episode of uh, Invalid Culture. And we have chosen, uh, I would say, a great place for us to start. Erica, what was your, did, did you have any, any relationship with this film before, it, uh, before you watched it? No, I had never heard of this film. I mean, I knew who Frankie Muniz is from Malcolm in the Middle, of course. Um, I was shocked to hear that uh, that that when when you spoke to people of a slightly younger generation about this film, that it, it seems to be quite well known. Uh, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about this film. Yeah, I I was also in the dark uh, until actually it was young people uh, kept referring to it in my class about disability and pop culture, my um, university class. And uh, I, I will share, um, I, I have a special connection, I think, to this film, because right in the early 2000s, I suddenly had people telling me that they thought I really looked like Frankie Muniz. Um, and that's a weird thing, because I do not look yeah. like Frankie Muniz yeah. at all. And like, I mean, like, we're both like, men, I suppose, boys, <laughs> um, we both have brown hair, uh, I suppose. Uh, and I never understood it. And it wasn't until years later that I saw this film and was like, oh, dear Lord, it's because Frankie Muniz was in a wheelchair in a film. And that's what people are clocking. I'm reminding them of Miracle in Lane 2 on some deep unconscious level. That is something. It is weird. So uh, let's just put the record out there. Um, I, I don't. I don't look like Frankie Muniz. I don't think. Even if I do low-key maybe have the same manual wheelchair as he does <laughs> the in quickie. this film. I do, I, I'm like fairly confident that I have the exact same wheelchair. Different color because I'm not basic, but the same wheelchair, I think. So what are we even talking about? Well, our friends that are listening, we are of course talking about Disney TV, not film, not even really Disney Plus didn't exist at this point. We're talking, of course, about the made-for-TV movie Miracle in Lane 2. From the box, sensational Frankie Muniz from TV's Malcolm in the Middle stars as Justin Yoder in Miracle in Lane 2, inspired by the true story of a mischievous and courageous 12-year-old who refused to let a physical challenge defeat him. His unrelenting desire to win a trophy leads to Justin's discovery that it's perseverance that makes a winner as he prepares for a national soapbox championship race. Fresh, funny, all of action and heart, Miracle in Lane 2 combines courage, challenges, and thrills for the ride of a lifetime. The ride of a lifetime. <laughs> the bar is set very high. It is, but you know, I mean, reading this over, it, it, doesn't, even, it doesn't even really ring. It doesn't no. even ring with the film. No, anyone who's watched this film might be wondering. They're like, well, I mean, Frankie Muniz is in it. 
there is a soapbox race. But a lot of the rest of it seems really disconnected. Did you find it fresh, Erica? <laughs> Soap, maybe it's a pun. Right. Oh, interesting. That's clever. Did you find it full of action? Uh, I mean, I'm not big on action, so I, I can't I can't really say, but I think it, most of the action was was contained within a, a short five or so minute window near the very end of the film. Yeah, like, I'm wondering what their definition of action is here. Like, I mean, like Frankie Muniz didn't kill anyone in this film that we're aware of. Implied, there may have been some implied massacres. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, th I think I would agree with that. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, if we're talking attempts, I think there was an attempt at funny too. Okay, yeah, I'll give them funny. I laughed at it. Probably not the way they wanted. <laughs> Would you say that it combined courage and challenges? Ooh, well, I mean, in a matter of speaking, there there, there was a lot of, uh, was there a lot of courage? I don't know. There was definitely, I think, I think challenges were a real theme in, oh, yes. in the film. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and, and coming from unexpected angles. You know, if we, if we take a close look at the film, I think Frankie wasn't, excuse me, Justin, wasn't the only one facing challenges. Uh, which I, is actually something I kind of liked about the movie, I'm going to say. I, I liked the fact that everybody was broken in this film. Mm -hmm. Literally everyone. They're like, <laughs> maybe, maybe the reporters, they were maybe not broken. But of course, you know, lamestream media. So, you know, they're probably broken too. But I find it interesting this would not let his physical challenge defeat him. Did, did you feel like that was really a part of the film? It wasn't. It was, I mean, I think it was the narrative. I think the narrative was intended to be, he wasn't going to let this physical disability ruin his life. Right. But I mean, ultimately, I think what we see play out in the film is that there are sort of real, there are sort of real limitations that, that he faces. Yeah, like there, he does face challenges, I suppose, that are like tangentially connected. Um, I suppose he almost dies a few times. Um, that's a recurring, recurring thing, which uh -huh, I guess, yeah. it's funny because I think watching the film, I don't know that I really saw the disability as being the thing that he was really fighting uh, in some ways. Like it seems like he was fighting a lot of like attitudes and like physical barriers and, you know, trying to understand his, where he fits in the family. Mm -hmm. We are doing a review of this film, but we are just two random people from Canada. And so we don't know anything. So we thought it would be important for us to go to the legitimate sources of film review. Uh, and as you can probably imagine, uh, the reviews were uh, in the press, not great uh, for this film, not well loved. Um, I think one of my favorite comments uh, comes to us from uh, David Cronk, Cronky, Cronk, not sure, sorry, David, DK, uh, as his friends call him. Uh, and he, anyway, he wrote on the LA Daily News uh, this, this brilliant quote. It could also be important for some children to see someone they respect so much playing a handicapped character. They might feel a greater sympathy for the disabled and understand that there are fewer differences between them than there might appear. What we noticed in a lot of the reviews for the film is this real desire to situate the value of the film, not in its ability to stand as art, but rather as its functional purpose in normalizing disability 
to non-disabled people, but also a little bit about what to do about disability. Just for anyone who, who might not know, something that really hit me about this quote is that, as you mentioned, uh, DK himself, themselves, are not um, non-disabled, we presume, and so is Frankie Muniz. And this is something that I think really gives some shape to the, to the film itself. Frankie Muniz, as far as we, I think, know, uh, is not physically disabled. And uh, I think we, we presume, having seen the film, that the, the writers and directors also perhaps don't have a lot of uh, live real world experience with physical disability. And that re that's, we really see that in the film. So it's, it's interesting that um, this, uh, this review is sort of setting this up as a story that's maybe going to teach people, educate people, warm people up to this uh, perhaps unfamiliar idea and experience of physical disability. Yeah, it's almost like they couldn't just be like, this movie is bad. They were like, well, we should reward them for trying. But these, this, um, this professional review really resonates with those, uh, those Amazon reviews. Like this is, this is a recurring theme that this is a, this is an educational film. Uh, Erica, what was your favorite one that you read? Hmm. I think I'll have to go with um, Gertrude Black's uh, five-star review, uh, Soapbox Derby. Which, which reads, uh, I purchased this when my sons were participants in the local soapbox derby. It was great inspiration for them. I have the trophy, magazine article, savings bond, and pictures to prove it. <laughs> so, so just, I mean, help me out with the interpretation of this. If I'm understanding correctly, Gertrude's sons were in a soapbox derby and were so moved by this film that they won a trophy. There's and savings bonds. They want money. Someone wrote a magazine article about this win. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously there are pictures, but uh, this movie was so moving. It was so moving. Without this film, her sons would be destitute and poor mm. right now. What do you think that savings bond uh, racked up to? Honestly, well, see, I wonder, like, like, did the savings bond get like wiped out in the 08 housing crisis like did it survive that did it wiped out in like the start of the covid financial crisis like it it's i love it i also love the idea that gertrude is perhaps just using films to inspire her sons in all of their tasks but she's like well when they were getting ready for university i uh, i got them that matt damon film uh and you know they watch that um and and now they know about apples and anger and they did great. And now they're Harvard grads and I have the pictures and the educational debt to prove it. Do we need to get more tactical with the disability movies? We're like, why haven't there, why have we not made a movie about a disabled person carrying COVID? Cause maybe that's all it would take. If there's anyone out there working on it, we need to know. Hollywood, you can have that one for free. That one's on us. <laughs> the next one you got to pay for. So I liked that one. I I, I also liked, uh, so there was one from um, presumably a completely real name, uh, <laughs> Gurgly Boudet. Um, Gurgly Boudet. If that is a real name, and Gurgly, if you're listening to this, shout out to you, brother. Uh, five stars, Miracle Name 2. Quote, this movie is one of my favorite movies. I can learn a lot from physically disabled people's lives. And I can see that everything is possible if we want. I will see it again and again. I like it. 
I could learn a lot <laughs> from physically disabled people's lives. I mean, I think that that is that is the the moral of this story. Yes, we are educational tools predominantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's sort of what we're here for. I love this, like, and this is going to come up, I think, a lot in our podcast, but I love this narrative of, like, anything is possible if you believe. Mm. And it's like, I mean, like, you can't fly. Like, it doesn't matter how much you believe. You're never going to be able to fly. I mean, if we, bird. if we can dive into the film, there, there's this question of uh, wanting to, to play sports. And <laughs> Justin, who I'm having a very hard time not calling Frankie, um, <laughs> wants to, I mean, it's not that he wants to play baseball per se, it's that he wants to be an athletic superstar like his big brother. Right. Um, but we, we see this attempt to, to, to play baseball and, and realistically he can't play baseball. The question is asked, like, how are you gonna run the plates? How are you gonna traverse the grassy outfield? Right. Can you play baseball? And, and maybe, you know, I think that's just kind of flies in the face of this idea that you can do anything you want if you just, will it just will it to be you can overcome reality yeah and it it just completely like ignores obviously like the actual experiences and challenges that people with disabilities face right Uh, because that's the challenge that's yes or maybe this is like maybe this is actually disconnected totally it's like okay well disabled people their lives are terrible but what we can learn from them is that as a non-disabled person I am a tremendously powerful and agentic person. I can do whatever I want and I should stop wasting my life. This is that inspiration porn thing, right? Yes. And I think we do catch a little bit of that in this film. A little bit. A little bit. There was one other review, I think that stuck out to me on Amazon by Pandora fan 685. It's unclear if this is a fan of the rings or of, of course, the home of the Navi in the film Avatar. I assume there are hundreds of fans on both sides. Pandora fan 685, five out of five stars. Good filmmaking is the title, uh, which is very suspect already. There are uh, there are some typos in this. Uh, and so I'm going to try not to butcher this as I read, but uh, Disney did a good thing shooting a movie about a wheelchair-bound boy named Justin Yoder based on a true story. I also like the scenes when they are in courtroom deciding whether Justin should play baseball or not. I like how the mom always defends him because he's handicapped and should have a right to play. This is a good movie. It's a balanced critique. I know, I like how he starts out as it's like, it's good, I'm glad that Disney did this. And then he's like, I'm gonna talk about one very specific moment in the film (laughs) for one sentence. And then I'm just gonna wrap it up. In and out. I mean, I, I think Disney would appreciate this one because they got the pat on the back that they were definitely looking for. They're like, finally, finally someone appreciated what we were doing with this film. And I, I just, I, I do have a question about there based on a true story. And I, I want to note that at the intro to the film, I believe the text is inspired by the life of. Yes. I, I'm not, I, I have some questions about the historical accuracy of this Inspired by the life of Justin Yoder. So for those of you who are listening, yes, there is a real human named Justin Yoder. But I wouldn't say this is an exactly blow by blow as far as two Canadians have been able to ascertain. Uh, Justin, if you're listening, call us. And that's actually real. I'm not even, I'm not even being a dick right there. I'd love to be your friend, Justin. 
Not because really you're want, I really want to know what Justin has to say about this film. I would love to know what Justin has to say about this film. So we've we've looked in at what the fans have said. Uh, fan might be, I'm putting that in giant air quotes. Uh, five out of five reviews. These are fans. Yeah, these are fans. These, okay, these people loved it. There were a lot of, there were a couple three out of fives that also seemed to love it, I will say. They were like, eh, TV movie, but I loved it. But this idea about who the film is for is a recurring theme in a lot of them. Is this movie for non-disabled people to learn about disability? Or is this film about for disabled people to be inspired by the accomplishments of the disabled person? Where do you fall on the paradigm, Erica? Um, I... I mean, this is this is where where I tend to fall in in general on this whole uh, discussion of disability narratives. I'm not I'm not sure it's necessarily one or the other. I'm not even sure that this is really at the end of the day a film about disability, right? No. Like I think I think we we're we're gonna see uh, some some big themes that are less about disability and more about like humanity and life mm-hmm. and death and you know, everything that sort of falls in between and human interactions and family dynamics, like the, yeah. the family dynamics here are interesting, but uh, if, yeah. you know, if I, if I have to fit your mold, I'm going to go the, um, I'm going to go the, the narrative about, I think it is more about inspiring than educating is all I can give you right now. What's fascinating is that a lot of the reviews seem to indicate that this is a movie for disabled people. <laughs> They're like, oh no, I would never watch this filth. However, if you have a child with a disability, this is for them. Go and watch Miracle Night 2 with your disabled child. That's who this is for. And I find that fascinating that there's this massive divide between like, I think what was the like the intended audience, which is I think to normalize disability. I think that's what they were trying to do. And that's totally not how people have have seen it. Even our, our old friend DK at the LA Daily News, right? He was like, this might be an important film for disabled people. This might be good for them to watch. I mean, I don't know if this is the point at which we get to dive into where they went wrong. If their intent was to educate, but I do think we have to talk about the way that disability is is constructed in this film. The good news is that this film is actually really straightforward and open about how it feels about disability. Like it doesn't really hide anything. In fact, I think the best way to understand the politics of this uh, film is to actually listen to the opening monologue. I cannot stress this enough. This is the opening monologue of the film in which Justin sitting in his bedroom watching his able-bodied brother Seth play basketball begins to lament about his life uh, and then eventually goes and has a nice uh, conversation with God in heaven about everything that is wrong with his body. Take a listen. And this would be me. If Seth is perfect, then I'm special which is my all-time least favorite word. It's how people say they don't expect much from a kid in a wheelchair. God, are you listening? God! God! Who's there? Thought you knew everything. I don't like being tested. I'm Justin. Justin Ross Yoder. Why are you here? I don't mean to be disrespectful, 
But I think when you made me, you messed up. I don't make mistakes. Well, somebody sure did. I mean, look at me. You look fine. Fine? I'm 12 years old and already had 24 major surgeries. My legs are linguini. I, I have more stitches in my head than a baseball. So what do you want me to do about it? Isn't it obvious? Fix me! Make a miracle! I mean, you still do miracles, don't you? Do That's a miracle. And ideally, a miracle that is in an area where vehicles travel. Perhaps a lane or a pathway would be fantastic. Not the main one, but the secondary one. I think the fact that this movie starts right off the bat, like right off the hop, talking about Justin's disability. Like he's looking out this window for Lorne, looking at his sporting brother playing, you know, my brother's perfect and I am but a, a broken special child who was not made right uh, with my linguini legs and my stitches in my head. Defining disability seems to be like a really important part of this text. How do they define disability in this film? Leaky. <laughs> <laughs> Fluidity. Wet. Very wet. There's a, I think the, we, we later learn that the, um, the apparent diagnosis is spina bifida and hydrocephalus. And we hear a lot about the hydrocephalus because <laughs> this fluid filled head could burst at any moment. Mm -hmm bringing on death. And that, that's a big theme here that um, our hero, Justin, is he the hero, anti-hero? Yeah. Uh, he, that, he could, that he could burst at any time, that he, he is living under the shadow of imminent death. He is broken, not made right. A mistake. Although now God says, I don't make mistakes, but I think we as the audience are supposed to kind of agree with Justin, right? What the heck? But this is the journey, right? This is the journey the movie is going to try and take us on, is that we are going to learn through Justin that he's not broken, that he's not a mistake, um, that he is special, I guess, but that it's all part of God's plan, right? I think that's... If you, if you didn't know, there is a, a religious undertone, uh, an overtone, <laughs> central <laughs> thesis uh, in this film, Um it, uh, and there's a reason for that, I think, which we'll discuss later. Um, but it feels like like the medicine, doctors, science seems to be a central role here in terms of defining who Justin is. Like his diagnosis precedes him everywhere he goes. It's, it's virtually all that we know about him. I mean, we don't know anything about Justin's social, outside of his family. We don't know, <laughs> we, never, we never meet Justin's friends. We don't meet his teachers, we meet his physician. Yeah, we meet his doctor. That, that's it, and God. He has yeah. a relationship with God and a relationship with his family, and that is virtually all we know about Justin other than his very leaky body. Yeah, it's, almost, it's like this weird, like, it's like every time he meets a new character, he reveals like a new thing about his body. <laughs> like his body is him. That is his life. Uh, there's nothing outside. I find it fascinating. Like we meet his brother's friends. Um, like his brother maybe has a girlfriend. Maybe it's just a woman who's a friend. And then there's this other boy that is sort of around his brother for some reason. We meet his brother's baseball team. We meet all these people in the brother's life. 
and we never meet anyone in Justin's life. Except for the the villain in the movie who he links up with eventually. Right, yeah, Justin does make a friend. Disability then seems to be very much situated within the body, that, you know, this is a kid whose entire life circles, it orbits. And that seems to be kind of the center of his family in some ways, too. The the concerns about Justin himself or the concerns about the, the medical aspects of Justin? I, thought, I would say both, I think, in some ways, right? Like, uh, you know, early on in the film, there's a scene where he has a bit of a headache and it's like, drop everything, get him to the hospital. Everything seems to kind of orbit the needs of Justin. And in fascinating a- in that scene, Justin is not being heard. Justin is trying to tell the family that this is not an emergency, but everybody is so locked in their routine to save Justin's fragile medical life that they can't hear Justin telling them right. that he's fine. Being like, no, this is just a headache. I'm fine. Yeah. And like even even the like both the parents are working long hours to pay for medical bills um, in a scathing indictment on the payment of academic professors in this world. The father is both a, a, a STEM teacher, he teaches in STEM, but has to work as a house painter to pay for the medical bills. And like the mom's hours and even the brother eventually will then sort of break down in the ways in which like his relationship with the family is driven by Justin's medical fragility. Is, is it worth noting that the brother himself also has some kind of undisclosed invisible mental health disability something we don't it's not it's not the it's not the center point it's apparently not as spec as um, expensive although he is going to therapy it sounds like weekly. yeah yeah so- and drinking bottles of medicine like straight <laughs> from the bottle uh for his what i assume is erectile dysfunction it's unclear it has something to do with his tummy i, I believe he describes it as matters that are like baseball yes yes that so like the, the like a stick and balls mm. being erect scoring bases yes yes yeah I, I i think the movie is probably implying that he has some sort of anxiety disorder in, in either case it is uh very much uh, about uh it is very much about emotions very much about <laughs> yes. his emotions absolutely yeah and, and doesn't really get any play like in a lot of ways it's like well you're fine just is not his physical needs are far more important than your like psychosocial needs. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that, as we said earlier, a really contentious moment uh, in in many of these films are the what I am going to call the Yoder fantasies. Uh, so Justin Yoder often um, daydreams throughout the film. Uh, he has these sort of fantasies. And so we made notes on on all of the ways in which Justin kind of fantasizes and and what the outcomes of those fantasies are. And the film actually starts with a fantasy scene in a very relevant moment. So I I think they're at, is it a a grandparent? A great great uncle? uncle? I think they said great uncle. Yeah. Yeah. So so they're in a funeral. They're in a church, I think, at a funeral um there's a there's a religious figure talking about the life of the deceased and justin goes into this wondering um what what would they say at my funeral what would my funeral be like as one does at a funeral (laughs) but the anxiety is nobody would have anything to say about me what would they say about me there's nothing to say about me the only thing that anyone knows about me is my fancy 
quickie manual wheelchair. Yeah, there's like this monologue from the preacher, right? Who's like going on about all the like the sweet, <laughs> the sweet add-ons to the wheelchair, which I am going to contest. I do not see offensive wings anywhere on that wheelchair. I do not think I think that is completely made up and shame on you. But it's it's funny. Like he it's like immediately he number one, as a child, a 12-year-old is thinking about his own death, which, you know, we've been we've been primed to understand that death is a part of his life. It's lurking around every corner. But at the same time, shout out to this film in some ways. Like, I think it's actually a really clever fantasy here to be like, people don't see me. I'm just a wheelchair. The wheelchair is the best part of me that people see. And that that's not true. Even if it is like literally the first scene in the movie, second scene, they're like getting ready for the funeral in the first scene. And then they immediately are at the funeral and he's like dreaming about the sweet release of death. You know where that, where that, uh, I think where the fantasy ends is, I think he actually, so it's all in his head until he vocalizes, um, what about me? Yes, yes. At the funeral, yeah. which hilarious yeah. for one. That's something I'm going to start yelling at every funeral during the, <laughs> during the eulogy. And this is what then sets off the journey, right? Mm -hmm. This is the, the hero's journey is for Justin Yoder to become more than his wheelchair. Mm -hmm. You know what? I actually think I now agree. I think this is a battle against his physical impairment because he wants to beat the wheelchair as being the most important thing about him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the vehicle, the vehicle that he chooses is another through, wheelchair. Is <laughs> through sportsdom. Yes, yes. It's through ultimate, ultimate, um, ultimate achievement of athletics, as embodied by Seth, his virulent but erectilely troubled brother, <laughs> more subtly fragile uh, <laughs> brother who has a supreme collection of trophies. Like I, I have a fair few trophies myself, but this is unlike anything I have ever seen before. This man has won every sporting competition in America since like the 1980s, <laughs> all of them. Since before he was born. Yeah, he was winning trophies in utero <laughs> for sure. Although I don't know about that because mom, we learn can't, uh, doesn't doesn't her sports her sports knowledge is quite lacking. I, I believe um right. she, she argues something about a touchdown in a baseball. Right. Yeah, because she's a woman, right? So mm -hmm. sports don't work in women's brains. We all know that. That's just that's just truth. The gender stereotypes in this in this depiction are are strong. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, Disney is like, there are two genders. And we know everything about them. <laughs> and they know nothing about each other. <laughs> right, right. They are completely divorced from each other. And they only tolerate each other insofar as sexual relation. Procreation is <laughs> a part of it. But this movie is actually pretty pro-sex. I mean, again, with the under overtones, <laughs> they are there, but there is no sex. No, no. Unfortunately, the movie does not have any hardcore pornographic moments. <laughs> Unfortunately. They are alluded to. There's the strawberry massage oil in the bedside table. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And his parents do try to like bang on the kitchen table. Um, 
but they can't because they are too busy making they're interrupted literally cover justin's medical bills oh yeah yeah let's put a pin let's put a pin in that one because those are really more our fantasies uh as opposed to justin's fantasies (laughs) right justin's fantasies right yes so so he has these sports fantasies he fantasizes about like his sports dumb so the sports one that i remember did you remember this one he's picturing himself playing baseball it's like a bases are loaded crowd going wild dark night lit by stadium lighting and he's out in the outfield waiting to catch this ball or i should say the ball is waiting for him to catch it because the ball hangs in the air as he gets out to it yeah yeah the rules of justin's fantasy life are confusing (laughs) i'm confused because he has the power to like control the ball so that he can wheel to get to the ball. And honestly, shout out for them not eliminating his wheelchair and his fantasies. That is like a common Ooh. thing in films yeah. where they're like, well, of course he would fantasize that he could walk. And that's not just his fantasies. Just his fantasies are really about a world that kind of bends around him in the way that he is, which like, dare I say, this movie might be kind of progressive accidentally. So he can control the ball, but he can't make like, his wheelchair go easy in the like grass um or like he doesn't fantasize about himself being like muscular and ripped and like like we never see frankie munez in like an athlete body in any of these fantasies i don't know it's i think what we see is he's not it's not that he wants to play ball it's not that he wants to be good at ball it's that he wants to accomplish the quintessential act that will earn him the symbolic trophy. Right. Yeah, it's it's the win that he wants. It's the win. And he doesn't want to change for it. He's I don't like, know though, no. because he does, he, he asks does God to fix him. That's true. That is true. And then we have the legal fantasies. Uh, the legal fantasies are, I I guess I'm team family court. What what, what are you? Are you are you team team family court or are you anti-family court? I was kind of neutral on the family court. It didn't, it didn't bother me. Uh, you know, it fit in well with the other fantasy scenes that we have appearing throughout. Um, they, you know, they move the plot along. They, they, they I think they, they enable some uh, grappling with, with topics that we might not have otherwise <laughs> seen come through. I thought the, the, the jury composed of uh, 10 or so different couples of the parents was a bit of a stretch, but. I, I liked how it showed two different but also kind of familiar archetypes of disability parents, mm-hmm. right? That, that they showed this dynamic in which like Justin's parents, the mom and the dad are not actually totally aligned on what's best for Justin and like what Justin needs exactly. And then we get this like, I don't actually really know the dad's politics. Um, that's a little bit less clear, but the mom's politics are really clear. Like what she thinks is best for Justin is like abundantly clear. And that is like inclusion. This is that like that fierce disability mom, the special needs mom that we kind of hear so much about, right? Where well, it's like my Justin son. Justin even calls her, he describes her as the grizzly bear. Yeah, 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 right? That she's gonna maul anybody that gets in the way. And that the most important part is that her son is included. Because inclusion. sports are for fun, she says. And the right. thing that we, we learn about dad is that dad is a sportsman, but dad has renounced sports because Justin can't play. 
So what dad really wants, and we see this as his enthusiasm for, for Soapbox Derby picks up, what dad really wants is for Justin to have the authentic sporting experience. To be a sporting man. Yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of wanting, he wants like authentic inclusion, whereas the mother seems to want more sort of like participatory inclusion. Yeah, totally. And the final fantasy, the reason that I first messaged Erica and was like, we have to do this film. We have to, because it has one of my favorite scenes in a film that I maybe have ever seen. That's probably, that's going to change as we do this. As we do this podcast, I'm going to come to new favorites. Um, so tell us about the end of the movie, Erica. The... <laughs> <laughs> how to begin to describe this scene um i wish i could recall and we might have to go back and look at this like what is the prompt what does justin say to god that prompts god so i know this you know this. i actually know this okay what is Um, it everything's wrapped up the movie is basically over uh and justin realizes like he's a champion now he's won soapbox uh and so he, he connects with god one last time and uh, because this is a movie about death, he is like, hey, God, um, what is it like in heaven? Like, what is heaven like? And is God, it, who does not perfect? make mistakes. And so then uh, God's like, well, let me show you. And, and I can't describe it without dying so- and seeing it. So, and, 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 Fra- and Frankie Munez, Justin, uh, describes it as perfect. Um, what is perfect heaven Perfect heaven for Frankie Justin is everyone in manual wheelchairs, tinged in gold with giant flapping angel wings. Just zooming around. Zooming around. Looking (laughs) as angelic as you could imagine. Perfect. It's perfect. And okay, let's take a step back here. Here's what I want to know. What are the rules of heaven in this world? Well, what I'm just wondering is, is it that you are physically disabled on arrival or is that only physically disabled people get into heaven? This is the question, the existential question of this film. Does God disable you when you arrive at heaven and put you in an angel wheelchair? Or the more militant interpretation, only disabled people go to heaven or... Are there multi-heavens in which, like, the disabled go to the disabled heaven, the non-disabled go to the non-disabled heaven, and Seth goes to erectile dysfunction heaven? So, I I mean, I think think that this conversation might be its own podcast. Um, But I I think the most salient point here is that we have reached the culmination of this this film. It's, it's, It's utmost message, which is that Justin is perfect. Yeah. Perfect as he is. Now the real question <laughs> is, is it is he perfect because he has now achieved his trophy? Well, yes. See, he was flawed before. He was going to hell because God only likes winners. I mean, he's a champion race car driver. Yeah, that seems to be the message. It's okay. We have to talk about sex. We have to because <laughs> we have come too far. Because Disney wasn't going to, so someone has to. But Disney does talk about sex. Like, what is amazing to me about this film is ostensibly it is for children. But there are, like, overt references to sex. 
like his parents are 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 written as sexual beings i think the first thing that we see they dad comes in the front door mom's on the phone and they they have this sort of like quick romp in the front hallway yeah before a funeral (laughs) you may be wondering why we keep on referencing strawberry lube um and that is because there is a scene in this film where justin yoder discovers a strawberry quote massage oil in the bedside table of his parents bedroom I am not, um, I'm not a, like a sex therapist. Uh, I don't, I'm not a registered massage therapist, but it seems to me the only reason you would want a flavored massage oil is if you were going to consume said massage oil. Is that accurate? Is that an accurate take? Uh, I mean, there's gotta be something to, to be said for the olfactory experience. It wasn't scented, though. It was strawberry flavored. <laughs> I mean, flavor is, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't you can't contest that. Nope. This was clearly a sex lube joke in a children's show. Oh yeah, <laughs> like undeniably. <laughs> and I mean, if if it were if it were just on its own, you know, I mean, let's say Dad was a massage therapist and happen to have a collection of massage oils. That's not right. the case. We have flirty parents who are- um, Constantly trying to bang. Yes. <laughs> Perpetually. But are they actually sleeping together? Because I think we see them, they're trying to, they want to, they right. have made kids, but there seems to be this obstacle. <laughs> right. They're, yeah, because they're always being interrupted. Mm. They're always interrupted by the disabled kid. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like, it's like, who will win? Two horny parents or one wheelie boy? And the answer is, the wheelie boy is supreme. Perfection prevails. Yeah, he is perfect. In his, like, absolute desexualizing self. Oh, is there something here about, like, the, the, like, the religious overtone and the abstinence? Well, that's the that's a really interesting question, right? Because I feel as an audience, we are supposed to feel for the parents. Like we want the parents to be just mating all the time. <laughs> and we want them to have that. But Justin, his differences, his specials makes that just not really possible. But I think we're supposed to want it though. Mm. But I think it kind of also helps us tap into this like, impaired masculinity that is a commonality between i think all of the men in this film yeah so let's talk about how a film about little penis cars go down a road i will say the film informs us that some people believe the soapbox derby racers with the black tips go faster um (laughs) unconfirmed if that's true or not completely unnecessary comment like yes when that comment is thrown out there are no black tips to be seen no and justin yoder does not have a black tipped car so it's not true the color of your car does not necessarily impact the performance what if we look at this film through the lens of gender and masculinity i mean this is your wheelhouse but this is a quest for a trophy. It's a it's a literal quest for a trophy. Right, 
Right. Like the basis of the movie is like, it's almost like a Cain and Abel story, sort of, where it's like super God sport athlete brother who has friends and all of these phallic trophies. And then like loser beta brother who wants to be a man and win trophies or steal trophies. Oh yeah, because he's not, he doesn't have to earn it. He would happily no. just get his hands. He will lie, he will cheat, he will yes. steal. He will as literally long as he steal. gets the trophy. The, the trophy is actually like possession of the trophy is what matters because possession of the trophy validates him in the way that his brother Seth has been repeatedly validated as the holder of the phallus. So I was surprised to find out a bit later in the film that dad also was an athlete. Mm-hmm. Also not, holder of trophies. Not not just a STEM professor. Slash painter, house painter. Also former holder of trophies. Mm-hmm. But he has renounced his athleticism right. in the name of, I guess, is he trying to be on Justin's level he doesn't right because this is this is the tension with Seth uh Seth and dad older brother and dad is that um dad hasn't participated in this uh athletic lifestyle with Seth he has to sit it out because Justin can't participate and he can't be there for Seth if he can't be there for Justin in this exact precise same way yeah it's like it's there's like this guilt right like if he engages with Seth's proper masculinity, it will just like, it forces an acknowledgement of the improper masculinities of Justin, right? That he's not a winner. He doesn't possess the phallus. Is this about guilt in creating? Like, does the father, is the necessary punishment of birthing an inadequate male the punishment is that he then is also not a male. Like, is he contaminated by, because that is the fruit of his loins, this disabled child. And therefore he has to give it up. And he also has to relinquish Seth, right? Because Seth can't be the son anymore because he produced like a faulty product. Right. And I think then like the mission of his life becomes rehabilitating this impaired son like his only chance at redemption is to fix the son right to be able to reclaim to get back the power of masculinity so the brother is a big part of this film obviously like the interaction sort of the interaction with seth and justin is like one thing but more so it's this interaction with seth and the family and the ways in which his like athletic achievements are no longer being validated because justin now is into racing soapbox cars soapbox cars but the brother also has problems and so as we said earlier there's this like he is now seeing a doctor for reasons that we do not know and he's guzzling nondescript medicine (laughs) I think it's Pepto because of his stomach issues. Interesting. But it's like a medical bottle. Like it's not like this is not over the counter Pepto. This is like this is the real. This is like medical grade. <laughs> medical it's grade. Antacid. Is it an antacid? I don't antacid. Know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It's it's odd. Well, whatever it is, apparently there's no dosage. Cause he just like slugs it like it's a bottle of whiskey. 
what is it about these films that seem to like always position the disabled person in juxtaposition with like the hyper athletic and hyper performative sibling whether it's a brother or a sister is it is it just a is it the contrast like is this part of defining disability as lack or as other it's like a desire like that like justin does literally in this film justin literally desires to be set i have a beef and it, maybe it's a beef or a confusion okay Okay, so we start this film and Justin is gazing out on the driveway basketball court. <laughs> yes. Flat pavement surface. Mm -hmm. Like I know, a Paralympic sport. Right. <laughs> Fabulous. It's so like, it makes sense when we see the baseball fantasy, you know, we got grass, it's mm -hmm. tough to traverse in a chair with a glove on. Like that much makes sense. But uh, why can't he be out there playing ball in the driveway? Yeah, yeah. with his brother. And his dad, like later, later in the film, we see the dad and the brother reunited and they right. are once again on this flat plane of a driveway playing ball, which, uh, you know, Justin, Justin explains that his, his legs are linguini, but, um, his arms are kind of ambiguous. His <laughs> arms seem to function well most of the time, yes. but occasionally he is acting some kind of hand gesture. Some sort that... of spinal cord injury. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I mean, there are enough, he, he does enough with his hands in the film to suggest, I think that he could hold a basketball. Yeah. And probably throw one. Probably. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like they want to, and note also that the brother literally plays every sport. So we, we hear that he's a baseball star. We see him play basketball. He wins the league or something at soccer. Like this kid is playing every sport yeah. and dominating at every sport, like just crushing it. And Justin like wants to live. He lives through that a little bit. Like he talks about Seth pushing him around for a victory lap when his brother wins. So he gets to like kind of like earn some of that or feel some of that pleasure of of like masculine conquest. But he wants the real thing. It's like not a good enough hit for him. The moment that that starts is when his brother, instead of taking him on the victory lap, is gallivanting with a woman. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. He's like showing off to this ambiguous woman character who i do not believe has a line in the film is she the um, same the same blonde friend from the beginning yeah i'm 90 percent sure yeah if she is the same one i think she might have some dialogue when they are like roaming through the neighborhood Jeez. and then there's also the outburst scene when justin calls out that his brother is crazy that he's going right. to a shrink and he's crazy cuckoo nutso yeah. he just unleashes everything Rawr. Right, exactly. He's like, well, my legs don't work. Well, his brain doesn't work, right? Yeah. In front of the girl. Because she's yeah. in, she's there, right? When that he's happens. There, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has to like humiliate him. It's like, well, I can't get to the, I can't get to the, the zenith of masculinity. So now I need to pull you down um, into like the, the sad castration land of the, of the, the man without the phallus. Yeah. Now, another thing that I've noticed, I've noticed this in, in a lot of films, particularly about physical disability, and I think it has to do with masculinity, I believe, uh, is that J Justin Yoder throughout this film is just bursting with fluid. Like this is a, a this is a goopy dude and who just does not have control of his fluids. He's got water in his brain. Uh, he makes reference to losing control of his bowels. He makes a lot of references to bladder problems. 
he is just this like leaky, fluidy boy, like fluidy boy. And I wonder how much of this is about like contamination. Mm. It's that like that anxiety, not just that Justin might die, but that idea that like Justin's body is just seeping out on everybody. And I think fluid and masculinity, uh, there is certainly a connection. Uh, I would say, uh, a think... seminal connection, if you will. <laughs> uh, you you seem to have glossed over the blue vomit scene. Yes. Literally bursting with fluids. Oh, man. Now, I think, I'm assuming that vomit scene, I thought, I think they probably thought that would play with, like, the gross funny. This guy is just fluidy. Super fluidy. And that seems to be a problem. Like, literally, there's, like, the problem of his life. But there's a lot of times where, like, his bowels and his bladder comes into it with just no connection or context. Yeah. And the the other one, the other um, connection that's just bringing me back to is when the race car driver, not in a god fantasy, but in real life, visits him in the hospital uh, when he finally does burst with fluids. <laughs> yes. Race car driver visits him in the hospital and... Uh, picks up his bedpan as a steering wheel and then takes it as a souvenir which he definitely pooped in oh yeah there is no way think also when the family comes in and he tells them that the famous race car driver has taken his bedpan uh there's a there's sort of a bashful moment of like and uh by the way can someone call the nurse right right it's like also i still have more fluids (laughs) that i need to get out of my body why did he not try to win a trophy for like biggest poop I have a question about this leakiness because like how are these fluids different from the tears that his brother ultimately sheds? Because I do believe his brother is the only one that we actually see cry. Yeah. Uh, I think Vic, who we haven't really talked about, but Vic, our sort of villain turned family (laughs) member. Something. Vic talks about um, sadness following the loss of his child and entire family life. <laughs> um but uh, yeah it was it's the brother that we do eventually see burst into tears and that mm. seems to be a i mean it just seems like that that those fluids are treated differently yeah i i, I think part of it is like control right like i think control is like another thing that's running under this like Mm -hmm. things that justin cannot control things that seth can and cannot control as well like that seems to be a big part of this narrative right like the ways in which justin is not at fault and the ways in which seth perhaps gets to a point where he Mm -hmm. also is seen as blameless in his erectile dysfunction but the thing with i I guess like justin's leakiness is is justin like that is how we know yeah. Justin. He is that a is who he boy. Is. He's just a moist boy. <laughs> but uh, but Seth, like Seth, has this on lock. Like no one is to know what these secret doctor's appointments are about. Mm-hmm. He has a stomach ache. He does not have any kind of emotional issues. Yeah. He doesn't even have emotions because he no. is sport. And as the as the famous film quote goes, "Winners never shiver." He's in control. A famous quote. Yeah, it's a Werner Herzog. That is like probably a very uh, niche reference. (laughs) Well, this might be the right demographic. (laughs) Maybe. 
uh, our friends and family <laughs> specifically. Specifically, your, your friends this. and family. <laughs> That's who's listening to this, I assume. Hello, family. <laughs> Hello, family. Thank you for caring for my leafy body. <laughs> Don't have a brother, mm. but my sister has a lot of trophies. Mm. Maybe they were right. What I didn't have growing up was a villainous black man who eventually became my best friend. This is, of course, the character Vic. And I think we need to talk about Vic. Child hating is a descriptor that you have left out. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes. Hates children and is feared. Like at the beginning of this movie, he is feared by the local, like the townsfolk. Right. Is that what I would say? I think that's accurate. Oh, absolutely. They, they believe he's the, he's this mythical figure that supposedly what it kills children or yeah murders someone. Yeah. He's a murderer for sure. Uh, for sure. But also is very concerned about hooligans in his neighborhood, <laughs> specifically the children hooligans. Don't believe me. Take a listen to how Vic is introduced at the start of this film. I live in a good town with friendly neighbors. With one major exception. Fred. Old man Vic. You hooligans are gonna get somebody killed! Who lives all alone and hates kids. Vic is a complicated character. At the start of the movie, he does not want to get involved. He's literally the villain. But eventually, Justin discovers that he can access a trophy through Vic either by stealing one of Vic's trophies from his uh, from his garage, or maybe if Vic will take him under his wing to learn the ways of the box. So Vic uh, eventually takes Justin under his wing. They form a relationship, at which point we are informed that Vic has lost his entire family, uh, that his daughter drowned, yes, died swimming. Swimming, swimming accident. And then the the wife, I think, died of like a broken heart, I think is the like implication. Yes, the doctors called it many things, but he's convinced it was a broken yeah, heart. It was a broken heart. Classic. Absolutely. It's almost like, is this a prequel to Star Wars? And Vic himself wanted to die. He, he didn't have the courage. Yeah. He had contemplated ending his life, but he didn't have the strength to do it. And so he lives as a villain. A sort of angry man taking care of cars. He's into rare cars, sports cars, if you will, and fact, swears off soapbox. This is how they they meet. They meet because villain Vic is in a car show, and uh, Justin sees an opportunity to co-opt this trophy. Right. Yeah. So Justin makes this deal. Right. He's like, I will help you win the car show by being a pathetic wheelchair boy. And in exchange, you will let me have the trophy of the car show. He he is like, yes. And then Justin gets impatient and tries to steal a trophy and ruins Vic's prized possession sports car in the process. Right, yes. And I, I don't think we can look past the symbolism of the sports car. Yes, Justin Yoder breaks into his garage and destroys his sports car. And that is the birth of a beautiful friendship. A beautiful friendship that inspires Vic to, to become a new person. 
Yeah. So it's like, as Justin is learning how to be a soapbox derbier, because apparently Vic is like the Dale Earnhardt of soapbox. <laughs> like this guy knows it all. He's like, oh yeah, well the instructions tell you to make it this way, but that's wrong because soapbox derby is a lot like nuclear physics. And Vic is the Oppenheimer of this text. And so it's ostensibly Justin learning from him. But of course, this is a family movie. Old Vic has got to learn a lesson as well. And what lesson does he learn? <laughs> I think we have a quote. We have a we have an audio clip for this one. Yeah, roll if it. I, if I may. I wanted to die, but I just didn't have the courage. Just crawled up into a bowl and forgot to care. <laughs> I was doing pretty good, too, till you come busting into my garage. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. Really? Yeah. Yeah, got to know you, see what you go through, how you just keep going. You got me and my car back up and on the road again. Yeah, and now Vic is ready. He's, like, he's overcome his, like, feminine emotions. And he's ready to be a man again. But like that was the piece of him that was broken that needed to be fixed. Yeah. It's funny too, like, because at the end of the film, right? Like Justin's dad tries to like hug him. And he's like, a handshake will suffice. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. It's like, because I'm a man again. And you then know? shortly thereafter, they are out on the freeway. He has decided that he will no longer be towing his red sports car around. He is ready yeah. to drive it. And this, uh, you know, he's got his convertible, hot woman in another convertible is checking him out on the highway, like confirmation that this masculinity has been restored fully. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Vic and that woman, 100% met up in a truck stop. They got out the strawberry lube and then Justin interrupted them. That, <laughs> I think that was a deleted scene. He had not yet achieved his trophy at perfection. No, no, he had not fully achieved. So no one is getting laid until Justin gets laid. There is. Okay. So when we get into the soapboxing, there's a uh, soapboxing. That's what they call it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The suds. When they get into the suds. When he first starts the sport, there is this like extreme celebration over the fact that he finishes. It's like, wait. That is definitely not what he was in it for. The survival was was a huge accomplishment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then he goes on to win the national trophy. He wins it all against a woman. Most of the people he races against are women, I will also note. Yes, which is interesting because, I mean, what, what do we know about the sport? Have there been uh, female champions in this sport? So because I'm now, uh, I'm now a sudhead, uh, like, like everyone else, I actually did look this up. Uh, and there are female winners, a hundred percent. Uh, I will say the year that Justin Yoder competed, uh, there were no women that won that did year. Just Justin must have won. So, that's a fun thing about that is because, according to their website, Justin Yoder has never won a national championship of the All American Soapbox Derby. You're telling me that a novice joined the sport and didn't win in his first competition? No, yeah, yeah. Oh, also, we should also point out for our listeners who have not seen the movie, he only makes the nationals because someone has to drop out. He, But he didn't, he lost 
to that person because yeah. of his leaky malfunction. Yeah, yeah, he had a he had a disability, a leaky moment, uh, and ends up in the hospital. So, as far as I know, Justin did not win a national championship. Justin Yoder, if that's wrong, come and fight me, and we will prove that we're both real men. So the movie ends in triumph. He he wins the championship, which he didn't. We're rewriting history here, so go yeah. with it. I'm going with what I read on the internet. And if I've learned anything about the internet, uh, it is that it is 100% true. But in the movie, inspired by, not based on, uh, Justin wins, Vic becomes a man again, uh, Justin's dad and brother figure out their relationship. They're now besties again. And uh, that's it. Are you inspired? Were you inspired? I mean... Did I, for a moment, consider whether or not I could take over the soapbox industry? The thought crossed my mind. Uh, I would say no. I don't think I was not inspired. I'm sorry. I think I wasn't. I think I was. I was maybe slightly. I don't know if inspired is the right word, but I did. I did kind of appreciate the. I appreciated that this was a. That this ultimately ended up being a story about Justin learning to self, accept himself. I, I will I will fully agree with you from a like disability politics perspective I actually didn't hate this movie even if it was completely ham-handed most of the time yeah I mean you know when you when you have someone telling someone else's story presumably without consulting you know the protagonist <laughs> unclear. Despite, their, despite their brief cameo <laughs> it's unclear how involved <laughs> Justin Yoder was in the making. Yeah, they don't they don't hear Justin Yoder. Like he wins the medal. I think he has to win. Like I feel like if he didn't win, people would be upset. Cause I I, like know. like the real story of Justin Yoder is that the break that is invented, the Justin break, that is a real thing. And that like literally is like a thing in soapbox now. Like that he does have a mechanism named after him. But that's not exactly like made for TV movie material. No, and it was, I mean, unfortunately, that was quite downplayed. There, there was, you know, there was that a good bit of a scene where the the brother, interestingly, kind of inexplicably, because the brother did, does not strike me as the, the type who was, you know, so politically engaged that he was going to be the one to come up with the strategy to call the media to ensure that this handbrake was allowed to be used despite very strict soapbox rules that prove... Yeah. Um, that, that regulate the construction of soapboxes and only allow yeah, feats only. So we felt it would be remiss of us to not talk a little bit about some of the very strange little things we learned about this film in production of this podcast. Because of course, it is not just about watching the films, but rather it's about digging in and trying to find out what if anything, we can find out about the film. And we actually did find some interesting things about it. So one of the things we wanted to keep track of is what brands of disability equipment are present within these films. Uh, so for those of you who are wondering, I'm sure you are, uh, Justin Yoder's wheelchair in Miracle Lane 2 is a Quickie brand wheelchair. So that is one notch for Quickie. Uh, and I also was thrilled to see uh, in the credits, there is a wheelchair consultant credited in this film, a Barbara C. Adside. 
Now, why Justin Yoder was not their wheelchair consultant, I don't know. It seems like you had one in-house. After all, he does appear at the end of the film. What does a wheelchair consultant do, Erica? Do you have any idea? I mean, I I, I think your, your question about why it wasn't Justin is <laughs> rather on the nose. Because uh, if we already have someone involved in the telling of this story who is, you know, rather expert at wheelchair use, why why are we hiring an outsider? But you know, on the flip side, if we're we're writing and directing a film, folks who have no insider knowledge of the the world of wheelchairs, uh, I, I suppose there are you know we need someone who can talk about the logistics of chairs and fields for like how to push it. Maybe like I'm wondering if this is like an OT. Like I wonder if Barbara Seadside is like an occupational therapist or something mm. who was like, all right, this is where you get the chair. This is what it looks like. Here's how you push it. Oh, so you're thinking it's more about acquiring it and using it rather than, I was thinking about the sort of translating it into reality in the film. Mm. Oh, okay. So this is like the dramaturge for, for Frankie Munez. He has his own wheelchair person, maybe. He's like, oh no, I got a woman. I got a person for this very role. (laughs) She'll really help me work through it. Um, Of all people, Justin's pastor came up with the concept for this film. I believe wrote the film. Wrote it and was uh, involved in directing. So there's a factoid for you. His pastor, which to me means that was, he wrote himself into the film. Right. Because there's the pastor at the beginning of the film at the funeral. Yeah, but so that was that's there's our real life there's a real life connection and another another interesting real sort of real life parallel is that Justin Yoder's dad is in fact a college professor in a deaf community in he's a is it does he teach ASL does yeah, he teaches teach? ASL I believe yeah which yeah. I, I just felt, I found that that rather fascinating that you know I think on the whole we've agreed that this film has some some troubling uh <laughs> perhaps plots perhaps representations and uh, and so i th- 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 this was a factoid that really shocked me that there were sort of disability or deaf community uh sort of actors here and i, mm-hmm. I this just raised a lot of questions for me about uh, what was their involvement in the film like were they were they consulted were they um was the family was justin consulted or part of the film or simply the subject of the film and not really um invited to participate beyond that it yeah like if you look online and 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 read there's actually like an article about his father talking about the importance his real father uh not the man who plays his father in the film the real father uh father yoder um who he talks about like, the importance of deaf culture and like protecting deaf culture and being sort of like, like trying to bridge the worlds, like the hearing world and the deaf world and and really advocating for deaf people, deaf culture, particularly within the church. Uh, and it is at that church that they met the two writers uh, of the of the film. And it's it's interesting because it's like, so the Yoder family are actually this like kind of activist family or at least advocate, right? Like they are trying to like raise the voices of like lots of disabled people. And Justin seems to do that as well. Like there's not a lot on the internet about Justin Yoder, but it does appear that he like continues to kind of try to like speak out for acceptance of disability, I would say, which is kind of cool. 
I almost wonder if they told the wrong Yoder story. Mm. I almost wonder that, I wonder if there's actually some more interesting things going on in the family that, you know, Soapbox Derby is, is maybe actually just one slice of a broader narrative of, you know, acceptance, inclusion, thinking about disability, maybe not as like a revolting other, but rather as a, as an other that we should be accepting uh, as opposed to fixing, rejecting, changing. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's unfortunate then that that's not the story that got told here. So final thoughts, Erica, Miracle Lane 2, what does it mean? I definitely don't want to give this film more credit than it deserves. Fair. It is is all kinds of problematic. Uh, I'm I'm really, I'm I'm quite, I'm quite disappointed in in some of the significant oversights. uh, (laughs) As I've already expressed, you know, my frustrations with the, why is, why is, Justin watching people play basketball from his bedroom window when he seemingly is perfectly capable of playing basketball. You know, I think it tells us something about who created the film and sort of what imagination drove the creation of this film that we see those kinds of oversights. I do ultimately, I feel, uh, I feel okay about this, the the sort of underlying story of self-acceptance, but that's very, for me, that that glimmer of hope was very much uh, sort of shrouded by the 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 sap, the the very right. um, the very thick sap that uh, that I think said a lot more about the people creating the film than its supposed audience. Whether we believe that the supposed audience were the disabled in need of inspiration or the non-disabled in need of education. Yeah, like at the end of the day, Yoder has to win in a non-disabled place in order to be seen as valuable, right? Like he has to, like that is the overcoming that happens is he has to like, like he couldn't go and join the Paralympics. That wouldn't have been enough, right? That that's not the trophy he wanted. Absolutely. But I will say, like, I will say, you know, in, in sort of maybe some credit, again, I don't know why I'm trying to give this movie credit, but there is perhaps some credit due in the fact that they didn't force him into the baseball. Like he didn't, he didn't go and play baseball just for fun. Right. Found a sport where he didn't have to change who he was to participate. He got to himself and absolutely. And if you were to take like a theoretical take, what do you think the like not not the, not the politics, but maybe what do you think is the ideology of Miracle in Lane Two? I mean, kind of summarizing some. If I if I could summarize what we've covered in a few uh, in a in, in as few words as possible, I saw a narrative of this 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 phallic trophy masculinity life, sort of threatened by pursued by this disability as death. Yeah, yeah, like it's not just like the loss of the phallus, it's like the death of the phallus. And and for the procreative possibility to die en route. <laughs> yes, yes. Like all the death. All the death. What's your theoretical take? I feel, I think that this film, it treads a lot of the typical physical disability tropes 
um, like the feelings of inadequacy, the feelings of um, wanting to be included, but not being included. And, and the idea that like the focus of the person is the body, caring for the body, mm. trying not to lose the body, trying not to die. Um, and knowing that that might be inevitable sort of anyways. And so while I think it does some good things, which perhaps is actually a credit to the Yoder family, and maybe that it like maybe the good stuff in this film is actually the influence of the Yoder family and what was kind of observed of them, the way that they operate and talk and that kind of thing. It's interesting to me that the film still had to cling to that kind of like sort of like over. He still had to overcome, you know, like that there was still that drive. He couldn't let it go. He had to win at the end of the day. And so I, I wonder how much of this is about, you know, performance of normative activity is the pathway to acceptance for disabled people. That disabled culture is not the direction. You should not lean into your disability, but rather you should force yourself into the normative world. hundred percent, hundred percent. I feel that my question is, is that a conscious objective of this film or is that the sort of subconscious leaking yeah leaking into the attempt to create a film that's going to sell i think so <laughs> and and i don't even know if the idea was the sent to sell i think part of this was a desire to heroicize um the justin yoder like i think maybe i feel like one of the intentions was to like share the story about the special boy i think that that was like a really that, that was a driver um, to show this fun family who are doing great things despite the challenges they face. But to retell the story in a way that he wins. Yeah, to give him what he didn't have. Or to yeah. give him what the filmmakers felt it was important for him to have. Which is why I will be making the sequel to Miracle Online 2, which is about how Justin Yoder won the Oscar for best <laughs> film. <laughs> for his cameo? No, the film in general, because he directed it in my movie. And you're, oh, yes, yes. In my movie, Justin Yoder wrote, starred in, and directed Miracle Lane 2. I think. And then won the Oscar. This, this just goes to say, you know, you can do whatever you put your mind to. Yeah. Yeah. Anything is possible. Exactly. And, and he won it against Catherine Bigelow because <laughs> he has to defeat a woman, apparently. Oh, yeah. Did you see the Hurt Locker? That was nothing compared to Miracle on Lane 2. Well, I think that is maybe as far as we can go on Miracle in Lane 2. I think we've really uh, unearthed some things. And if you feel the same, if you enjoyed your listen, then check back. We are going to have more episodes coming in. Make sure you subscribe, and of course, make sure you tune in, because our next episode is sure to be a barn burner. That's right, we are going from the glorious streets of Akron, Ohio, out to the West Coast for a little film known as Different Drummers. From all of us at Invalid Culture, we hope to talk to you soon.